You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So if you've got your Bibles, go to the book of Ruth. Um, You'll find it, you'll so it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you've got Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. And so uh, if you'll find that, I'll, I'll introduce it. We, um, so, so Ruth, it comes uh, right after the book of the Judges, and um, it's because the story of Ruth and, and Naomi and Boaz, it takes place during the time of the Judges. So, so it comes right after that from from Genesis to 2 Kings, is the, this is the history of the Old Testament, and it, it tells this long narrative about God's people, the Israelites. And the judges, uh, this time during the judges was one of the darkest times in Israel's history. So they wander, the Israelites wander for 40 years in the wilderness, the children of the Exodus, they get to go into the promised land under Joshua's leadership, and then the, the book of Joshua uh, records them going into the land and, and taking the land, but it only takes 40 years for the people to, um, to turn, turn away from God. It, it, and it's a period of 300 to 350 years. And the way that the Judges describes it, the, the refrain in the book of Judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when you live your life doing what is right in your own eyes, the end of that is idolatry. The end of that is being separated from God. And so we're not talking, we're not teaching, preaching from the book of Judges this morning, but it is the backdrop. It's the backdrop of this story about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and the story of the Judges is the story of God's continued grace in the life of His people, even when they turn away from it. In every generation, God will raise somebody up in the book of Judges to rescue a generation, uh, to deliver His people. And the beautiful thing is that this book of Ruth, it takes a lens and it focuses this lens of God's grace on a single family during one of the darkest periods of the, of the, of the Israelites' um, story. So if you're there in Ruth, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1 and uh, read a few verses and we'll talk about it and we'll, we'll kind of uh, make our way. We'll, we'll hop and skip through Ruth um, to get the idea of it. But in, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were, the, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Abimelech, the husband, uh, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the other name was Ruth, and they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, so the first five verses of this book set the scene. scene. The first, you know, big word you come across is the word famine. 
And we're not told, but it's, it's likely, it may be very likely that it is a judgment of God on Israel at large. It, it's, a, it's a time of famine. So you have this big word famine. You also have a big move. And whether it's justified or not, this family, Elimelech's family, leaves Bethlehem and they go east across the Jordan River into the mountains of Moab. They go to where the Moabites live. There's a big move. There's also a bad fact. Elimelech dies in verse 3. So what we have now is we have one death, one widow, two sons, and then in the next, uh, then you read about two marriages, ten years, two more deaths, and so a total of three losses. And you, you do up the math here, you, you tally up all the math, and it equals trouble. It, it equals devastation. One famine, three deaths, three widows, ten years, five verses. And that's the opening block of the book of Ruth. And it, it's sobering. It, it's instructive to us. It's not telling us that, that our, our lives have a guarantee. In fact, what it's telling us is that our life can fall apart in five verses. That that kind of stuff can happen even to the people of God. And so what these five verses do is very succinctly, they, they cure us of of falling for any kind of prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. So see, the author, what he wants to do is right off the bat, he wants us to feel the desperation of Naomi. I mean, she has nothing. She's lost everything. Naomi and her husband Elimelech were likely born in brighter days. I mean, Naomi, her name means, means pleasant or, or sweetness. And in Elimelech's name, it means God is king. By the time they were married, though, and they had a family, the darkness had settled in. And you know that because the name of their kids are Malon and Chilion, which means weak and failing. So the family is kind of this microcosm of the nation. It's a snapshot of, of humanity. In verse 6, what's going to happen is, is um, Naomi, she, she's in the fields of Moab. She hears that the Lord's provided uh, bread for the people in, in for his people in, in Bethlehem. And so so they're gonna go, they're planning to go back to where her people are. And along the way, she has a conversation with her daughters-in-law, and she encourages them to start again. So, so they're young widows without children, their prospects of finding a husband among the, the people of Israel is, is is there's nothing to offer them there. And so in verses eight and nine, what she does is she she wishes for her daughters-in-law that God would deal with them kindly and, and grant them rest. And, and the word is uh, kindly has said, this, this loving kindness. It's a faithful love of the covenant God. And she's, she's blessing that. She's praying that upon them. Because Naomi, she looks at her life and she doesn't see God's faithful love. She's not able to see his security in her future. In fact... From what she can see with her eyes, God has dealt bitterly with her. What Naomi is doing is she's praying that, that God would provide Ruth and Orpah kindness and rest, but she sends them back. She's sending them back to their pagan gods to find it. So Orpah goes home, but then Ruth stays. And in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, it says this, but Ruth said... This is Ruth's famous line. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from you. 
For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. So Ruth, is what she's doing, she's pledging herself to Naomi. In many ways, you can think about it like this. Ruth is taking Naomi's life onto herself. And once Ruth is saying, listen, if I go back home, if I go back to a life, if I go back to, to a future that awaits me there, what I do is I leave Naomi to her death. If I go back in hope of blessing and security, then I leave Naomi in poverty. If I keep my life, Naomi's going to lose hers. I mean, she's a widow in, in this time period, and she's past the age of remarrying. She has nothing. She can't go back to her father's house. She has nothing. Ruth is going to take Naomi's poverty onto herself. She's, she's taking her disaster and her alienation onto herself. I'll become Naomi's poverty and all that that means so that she might have a future. She might be blessed. She's giving her life for Naomi. But more than that, what this confession tells us, this, this pledge, more than pledging herself to Naomi, what Ruth is doing is she pledges herself to Naomi's God. Even though Naomi, she doesn't have the faith to trust God for her future, but Ruth does. I mean, she, she's leaving all that she has behind her family or her identity, her future, and she's placing herself in God's hands. Ruth believes what Naomi doesn't. Ruth believes what she can't see. And that is that the God of Naomi's people can be trusted, the one true God. So in verse 19, what you see is they, they come back to town and the people notice a change in, in uh, Naomi and, and the, the, the years have been hard on her. And, and so her name means, means pleasant or sweetness, but she concludes to the women, she said, don't call me that anymore. So don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitterness, because that seems better. Is this what it looked like on the surface for Naomi, she says, I, I went away full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. She wasn't able to see the reality of her life was exactly opposite. It's going to take four chapters for that reality to unfold. And despite all that she lost, what she gained was Ruth, and she doesn't even know that's more than she could have ever imagined. You see, here's the reality. There's this deep current of God's sovereignty, a deep current of God's love, a deep current of God's surprising grace that is going to be at work in Naomi's life. I was reading about the, the waters around Greenland and there are icebergs everywhere, countless icebergs, some little, some, some gigantic. And um, if, you, if you were just to look at them on the surface, um, you'd notice sometimes that the small so icebergs, they, they flow in one direction, while the ones that are bigger seem to be moving in a different direction. And the explanation of that is simple, because the, the surface winds, the, the, the winds that, that, that blow across the surface of the water, they blow the small icebergs in one direction, and yet underneath there is this deep ocean current 
that drives the bigger icebergs in a different direction. And this is the picture of Naomi's life. In fact, it's also a picture of Ruth's life. There are two forces at work in their lives. There's these surface winds, and then there's these ocean currents. And the winds, they they represent everything. I mean, everything unpredictable and distressing and and chaotic, the, the, the suffering and hardship and insecurity and uncertainty of life. And the winds seem to blow. And sometimes you think, is the wind ever going to stop? But operating at the same time, with these winds blowing across the top, is another force that's even more powerful. You might think about it as the sure movement of God's grace and His wisdom and His sovereign purposes, that the deep flow of His unchanging love. You might say it, His surprising grace. And all that Naomi can see is the surface winds. But Ruth, what we're going to see, Ruth senses there is a deeper current of God's love taking place. I mean, life had knocked the wind out of Naomi. She felt alone. I'm sure she regretted the decisions of of the past. The, the, the what-ifs, you know, that's an easy road to go down. Maybe she felt that all of this was God's judgment on her. Here's what she couldn't imagine. God was bringing her home. So, so she'd left, but God was bringing her back in His, in his sovereignty and His goodness and in his, in his grace. God was blessing her. Even when she couldn't see it. Even when she couldn't Believe it. And even though her faith was weak, maybe her faith was gone. God's faithfulness to her never failed. See, I think the reality is, is God takes us further, draws us further, brings us further than our knowledge of Him, than our knowledge of our circumstances, than the knowledge of our suffering. And as our faith deepens, we experience the deep currents of His grace beyond what we could have even imagined. This is going to be the story. Well, we'll pick up. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 2. There's going to be a a new character that arrives on the scene at the beginning of 2, and his name is Boaz. We find out he's a relative of Naomi. In fact, he's a relative that, that could be what's called a kinsman redeemer. He, he could be the one that, that, that could come and, and, and provide for Naomi and, and Ruth. So uh, Naomi sends Ruth out to his fields to glean the corners. It was the way if, if you were poor and you didn't have anything, you could go to fields. and They didn't cut the corners, they made circles, and so... You could go and you could gather up what was in the corners. That's what she's sending Ruth to do. And in verse 8, the story picks up. Boaz sees Ruth and he says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let, let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And, and when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn She falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, 
that you should take notice of me since, since I'm a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, and all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you didn't know, the, the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Then she said, I, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant even though I'm not one of your servants. Ruth sets her out to provide for Naomi. She just happens upon Boaz. Boaz enters the scene, and he's, he's the kind of man. Um, he's the kind of man that's very different from the day. From the one that everyone does right in their own eyes. Here's a, here's a man doing doing right for someone else. And, and, and what's amazing is, is he, he notices her. He inquires about her, discovers she's worked the whole day with, without much rest, and, and he offers her his grace and his protection. And in verse 10, you, you hear, Ruth found favor in his eyes. She, she said, you noticed me, that the, really what she's saying, you noticed me, the, the unnoticeable. She's a Moabite woman. She's just trying to blend in. She doesn't want to stand out. She doesn't want any attention. And yet he, he noticed her. When I was in college, I was a Young Life volunteer leader. And every year we'd have these um, uh, white elephant gift exchange parties, you know, where you, you bring a, a gift, and, and um, so I'm in college. One of the other leaders in college was a guy named Brad Ellis. He was, he was the cool college leader. Um, he was the coolest. I mean, you might have thought I was, but he, he, actually, he actually was. And, uh, but here, here's how it went. So the rules of exchange were something like this. You know, a gift could be exchanged three times, and then after the third time, it's, it, it's safe, it's locked down. I mean, you couldn't go and get that gift anymore. Most of, most of the gifts were Ridiculous, you know, toilet seats or pictures of a dog smoking cigars and playing poker or, you know, Budweiser belt buckle and, you know, it's West Texas, uh, dead batteries, you know, things like that. But, but there was, on this occasion, there was this like one amazing gift in the mix that night and it was an autographed football. And, and I think it was like an autographed Troy Aikman football. Well, anyways, here's the scene. So the football had been traded and it, it had gone around and, and the, who's at the party are, are college leaders and adult committee and, and all of this. But there, there was one uh, kid. So, so the football had been traded around. Then it was Rob Eagle's turn. And Rob is a seven-year-old boy. He was, a, he was a son of the committee couple that were hosting the party. And um, it was unusual to have these kids. Play. But, but Rob was super excited about it. He you know, loved being around all the folks. And I mean, just the idea of, of getting, the, you know, a gift was so fun for him. And so it comes to his turn, and you could see um, that Rob really wanted the football, but he also, when he got the gift that he was either to open or exchange, I mean, he, he couldn't help himself. I mean, he just had to open it. I mean, just not, not knowing what was in there, and, and you've got to exchange it before you open it. And so couldn't help himself, and he opened the gift, and what he opened were four dead batteries. His heart sank. I mean, it was, it was kind of sad. But, but the truth is, in a room full of college kids, I mean, nobody really noticed that. I mean, he's a kid. He's got a long time to get over it. You know, I mean, 
So a couple of turns later, Brad Ellis, he gets a gift. He trades for the football. Third time it's been traded. Now it's locked down. It's safe. It's Brad's. He gloats. He, you know, he's got the prize. And then what he does is he walks over to Rob. He says, hey, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I really want your batteries. You've got to take this football. Brad noticed him. I mean, seven-year-old kid, he'd been forgotten. He was out of the game. Nobody wanted what he had. But Brad noticed him. This is grace. I mean, that's the surprising thing about grace when it comes upon you. It notices you. And the Bible tells us that we're never hidden from God. I mean, even when you're trying to hide, He notices. And He is pursuing you with grace. That's what Ruth says in verse 13. I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you comfort me. You've spoken kindly to your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants. Well, so Ruth will go back. She returns with the grain, a meal, and the report of Boaz's kindness. And Naomi's going to tell her, well, he's a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Well, in chapter 3, what happens is um, Naomi has this plan, and so she knows where Boaz is going to be, and um, you know, there's a big party that night, and, and so she tells Ruth, this is the night. Go and, and make yourself available, presentable to him. I mean, this could be the night. I mean, this could be the night that, that Boaz w- w- would take you and, and, and redeem you and, and, and marry you. I mean, he would be a kinsman redeemer. He would, he would redeem us. And the way he'd do it is through this marriage. So, so Ruth, she, she gets dressed up. She goes, and what happens is, is that Ruth makes this proposal to Boaz. Sp- spread your wings over your servant, for you're a redeemer. I mean, she's, she's asking, would, I, I, I would come under your care. Well, Boaz is an honorable man and certainly wants to. He knows all about her. She's, she's, um, she's more than just would be an obligation to him. It, she, she would be a prize for him. But he knows there's a nearer relative than he is. And so to keep everything above board, what he does is he's going to call this nearer relative. And that's how chapter 4 begins. And they, they do this business at the city gate. That's where it happens. And so the city gate happens. They call the ten elders. Boaz presents to this, this nearer relative, this nearer redeemer. And he tells them, hey, look, the land, you know, if you want to buy the land, Naomi's land, all her family, you can buy the land. And, and he thinks, well, that's a really great deal. I'd love to have that land. I've always had my eye on it. And and then Boaz says, but hey, listen, here's the catch. What, what comes with the land is not just the land and all that it brings to you, but Naomi's part of the deal and Ruth is part of the deal. Children for Ruth. And then the land's going to go to the child. And you're going to end up blessing Naomi and Ruth with a future. Well, the price was too high for this guy. So I'm, I didn't sign up for that. That's not what I want. I, I pass. Well, to be a redeemer, you had to be a close relative, a member of the family, 
of the, of the one to be redeemed. You, you must be able to pay the, the required price of the redemption. You, you've got to be able to pay the price it would mean to redeem them. And you must be willing to be the redeemer. At this time, that was a voluntary act. So Boaz steps in. He becomes the redeemer. He, he comes and sacrifices at this great cost. He assumes all the debt, every liability. He takes Ruth as a, as a wife. You can only imagine what those words would have sounded like, what they would have meant to Ruth. And he guarantees their future. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, we'll pick up there. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourishment of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. Seven sons would have been the perfect number. What they were saying is, Ruth's better to you than any man or any seven men could have been. She's given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Just listen to the reversal. A foreigner becomes a wife. The barren conceives a child. The, the bitter woman is, is going to be nourished and redeemed and restored. She wasn't forgotten after all. She didn't come back empty, like she said. Actually, she came back whole. Ruth was more than all she had lost. In one sense, you're hearing, Naomi, you weren't empty. You were full beyond the brim all along. Well, there's one final note, and it's actually, I think this is what the narrator's been leading to all along in the story. And it's the last few verses of Ruth chapter 4. It's the very end. It's a genealogy. It says this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. In fact, you can find that genealogy word for word in Matthew chapter 1. See, the, these last four verses is saying that God was all along working out his kingdom plan. The, the fact that, that, that Boaz fathered Obed, I mean, that, that's part of it, which, which implies that, that all of Naomi's affliction and trouble and, and insecurity and insignificance had been caught up. It had been, it had been worked together in the surprising grace of God's sovereign plan 
for his world. Now at the end, you see this. So this is something Naomi, she, she, she couldn't see how God would redeem her, her affliction. She couldn't see it at the beginning. Using it as a vehicle and bringing his everlasting kingdom. So now she could see Obed. She could see the unexplainable devotion of Ruth. But the writer at the end, he, he adds this, you know, this genealogy addendum at the end. And he's showing us here what, what Naomi couldn't see. I mean, she, she, she could see Ruth, and she could see Obed, and she could see she was blessed, but she had no idea how she was blessed, that through Boaz... Uh, and, and beyond, Naomi and her company would all go all the way to David. And David, he'll end up being the covenant king. And, and then from David's line will come Jesus. The son of Mary, the son of God. And, and to this Jesus, he will give, as Luke says, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so we're reminded in the story of Ruth that we simply do not know enough, ever, to despair completely over what seems senseless and insignificant and, and the sufferings that come. We don't know enough. Three things I'd say in conclusion. One is that God is always at work even when I can see no evidence of that. God is always at work even when you cannot see any evidence of it. So Naomi's heart of bitterness Caused her to forget that God's gracious and compassionate and sufficient, that He's a supplying God. The Lord, He mercifully, mercifully supplied Ruth. God graciously brought them back to Bethlehem. He provides a kinsman redeemer, a godly man that stands out like a bright light in the dark times. Takes Ruth under the shadow of His wings and Naomi sees what's right in front of her. That's all she can see, an empty house, no husband, no heir, no food, all, all wrapped in a big wet blanket of bitterness. But it doesn't prevent God from accomplishing His will. God's always at work. I mean, even when we're stuck in the, in the mire of worry and disappointment and unmet expectations, there are signs of hope because God works under the surface. See, that's what the story's all about. We shouldn't lose hope. That we should cling to hope. That no matter what's going on in your life, God's doing a thousand things for His glory, for your good, even when He appears to be absent. Even when He appears that He's not listening. One of the great things about Ruth, when you consider all the stories of the, of the Bible, all the stories of the Old Testament, all the stories of Genesis, what you realize is, there's nothing in the book of Ruth that's miraculous. There's no miracles. There's no dreams. There's no visions. There's no um, voice of the Lord that comes into her head. It's a story for 
people who look around their life and see absolutely no dramatic answers to prayers. No dramatic events of any sort. Nothing but insignificant moments and hard times. The book of Ruth is saying, look, insignificant moments and hard times, God is still at work. He's still there. He's still at work. He's working in innumerable ways for His glory and for your good, even though you don't see it. We want to be people who learn to and listen for and look for God's hidden work under the surface of our lives. Well, not only that, what we realize is that God has a perfect plan for your life. And nothing can quench His determination to bless you. I mean, I think that's what the story of Ruth teaches us also. That the purpose for life of His people is connecting them with something far greater than themselves. That God wants us to know that, listen, when we follow Him and and, and our lives, when we do, they mean more than we ever imagined that they would. See, for the Christian, there's always this connection between the ordinary events of life and the breathtaking work of God in history. The, The surprising grace of God is that our lives are written into the eternal beauty of God's story. Everything we do. Everything we do by faith, no matter how small, is significant. It's part of the sacred and holy mosaic which God's painting to display the greatness of His power and His wisdom to the world and, as Paul says, to the principalities and the powers and heavenly places. And the deep joy of the Christian life is that it doesn't get overtaken with things we might think are insignificant. This deep current of God's surprising grace and His holiness is no wasted detours in our story. You find yourself serving a widowed mother-in-law or gleaning in a field or falling in love or having a baby or raising your kids or going to work or providing for your family or coaching a little league team or serving on the PTA or giving generously or living sacrificially for the believer, these things are connected to eternity. They're a part of something so much bigger than we would, than they seem or that we can see. They're a part of the wonderful and gracious and eternal story of God. Final thing I'd say is that Ruth reminds us that God's grace is greater than the scandal and offense of my life. And so God loves me. God loves you with the full knowledge of the worst parts about you and even has the sovereignty and power to make your mistakes. Step in line with His will. There's no scandal past that uh, no scandal is past that God can't redeem for His glory and good. This is the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. It's what we're looking at these weeks. 
As we look at Jesus' genealogy, as Matthew records it, here's the line of Jesus, and it's right in the middle of it. And they stand out, these four women. I mean, not only is David's you know, great-grandmother a Moabite woman, I mean, that's scandalous enough. The Moabites, they, they weren't even able to enter into the congregation of the Lord, it says in Deuteronomy, even to the 10th generation. And the little book of Ruth closes with a 10-generation genealogy that finds its pinnacle at David. Even more than that, his great-great-grandmother, you remember last week, was a prostitute, Rahab. Boaz is the son of a prostitute. And Perez, I mean, his father was Judah, his mother was Tamar, he's born of incest, and you read all about that in Genesis 38, we talked about it two weeks ago. And this is the family of Jesus, our kinsman, redeemer, who took on flesh, who became one of us in the incarnation, he became part of the family with all the sin and all the scandal and all the shame and all the offense, and he sacrificed himself, he paid the ultimate price to redeem us all we lost and all that we owe. He took, him on, took it on Himself. All that we are, He took on Himself. He took on to Himself our poverty, our sin, our shame. Jesus says, I'll become poor. I became all that you are so that you might become rich. So that you would have a life. I take onto myself your death so that you can have life. Jesus is our Redeemer. And we're reminded through the book of Ruth that Ruth is one of the ancestors of Jesus. He became one of us so that we could become like Him. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate the coming of Jesus. Not just the baby born to the teenage girl and laid in a manger, but the baby that grew to be a man who lived a life you could never live. I could never live. Absolutely perfect in the eyes of God and then takes His life and hands Himself over to death. And in doing so, the Bible says that He took onto Himself everything. He became the sin we are so that we might become the righteousness He is. Listen, this morning, if you have found yourself having traveled away and realizing, I wonder if I can ever come home. I find myself empty. I wonder... If I could ever come home and be whole. The story of Ruth says yes. The story of Jesus says yes. The gospel of surprising grace of the Son of God says yes. Come home.